0: get your first book for just 9.99 by using the code chirp CHIRP one more time that's bookofthemonth.com use the code chirp and get reading Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Are you feeling stuck? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. It's so easy. You can get help on your own time, at your own pace, while you're in quarantine, while you're in the fetal position. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. These are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping issues, trauma, grief, LGBTQ matters, anger, you name it. Anything you share is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. There are 3,000 United States licensed therapists across all 50 states. And this service is available worldwide. Start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. BetterHelp online counseling available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. Schedule video and phone sessions. Deal with a therapist with broad expertise. And financial aid is available for those who qualify. This is secure, convenient professional and affordable. Please note that it's not a crisis line. Best of all, it's affordable. Did I say that already? Other people with Brad Listy listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code Other People. That's O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Use that discount code and get 10% off. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Simply fill out a questionnaire to have them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com/otherppl and use the discount code otherppl, all right? Okay. Hello. Hello everybody, how are you? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People show. I'm in Los Angeles. And I thank you for tuning in. I have Juliana Delgado Lopera on the program. They are the author of a novel called Fiebre Tropical, available now from the Feminist Press. Fiebre Tropical was the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And uh, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. If you're interested in that, just check out the NervousBreakdown.com. Uh, so Juliana Delgado Lopera and I were supposed to talk in person that was scheduled in March. So the reason why you're just now hearing them on the program is that, uh, you know, I was waiting for them to get here. And so I could sit down in person and then the pandemic, you know, shelter in place stuff happened and everything got turned upside down. And so we had to reschedule and do it over the phone. And now here we are. So, my conversation with Juliana Delgado Lopera coming up momentarily. I just want to do a quick reminder about some social media stuff. The Other People podcast has its own Instagram feed. That's relatively new, and uh, in case you're not aware, you can follow the show on Instagram. My social media director, Joseph Grantham, is uh, running that show, and it's it's very entertaining. So if you want to follow the podcast on, on uh, Instagram, you can do that at otherppl.podcast. You can also follow the show on Twitter at otherppl So, otherwise, happy Sunday. Here's another Sunday episode. I can't promise I'll be able to do it every Sunday, but I'm going to try to do as many Sunday episodes as I can while we're all, you know, in quarantine. So, this is my conversation with Juliana Delgado Lopera, Their new novel, Fiebre Tropical* is available now from the Feminist Press. It is the official February pick of the, or it was the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen. This is Juliana Delgado Lopera.
1: I went to an all-girls Catholic school, um, very, very rigid, a lot of discipline. Um, My family was extremely, extremely, extremely Catholic. Um, I come from a matriarchy, so my mom has five sisters and my grandmother had five sisters. So there's a lot of like feminine women energy in my family. Uh, my great aunts, so my grandmother's sisters, I believe two of them migrated, um, f- maybe 10 years before we did. And I'm not sure why they did that. Um, and they went to Miami and Miami seemed like the place to go because it's only three hour and three and a half hours by plane to Colombia, And there's already a lot of Colombian people in there basically. And there was like, and because, uh, Q and people literally built Miami, um, there's a lot of just like Spanish speaking people and a lot of Spanish speaking business. And there's like an economy there that is like Spanish based. And so my family moved there, my great aunts and then my mother uh, divorced my father. um, And she, you know, she was a single mom then with two daughters And my her other sisters, two of her other sisters, uh, migrated to Miami um, a couple of years before we did. And they were telling her, you know, like, oh, there's public school here is free. And, you know, like, I'll get you a job and it's all going to be fine. And, you know, at the time, I think also for my mom, like she was just the situation in the country has always been, um, you know, the 90s in, in Colombia were really harsh. And, um, uh, my mom had to raise us during that time. And so by 2003, which is when I moved to the States, she was like, I need to go out because she didn't want to keep raising two, two children by herself in, in the country. And so she, we ended up moving to Miami, um, with my aunt and my grandmother who was already, who was already in Miami, um, but Colombia for me was really formative. I mean, and and again now I think that at the time I didn't know it, but in retrospect, um, I can see how it was very important for me. It was crucial for my development as as a writer. Um, and again, I grew up just watching a bunch of women like talk around the dining room, and I grew up around my grandmother who would just watch telenovelas. My grandmother was a seamstress and a cook, and I was left with her almost every day of my life until I was. Probably like nine, and she will make me dresses, and she would, and we would like reenact scenes from the telenovelas. My my the house my house with my mom was very very rigid, Um, but I mean with my grandmother it was like this like huge like um, creative world, and um, she didn't finish high school, um, but she had a really powerful way with language, Um, and she talked a lot in idioms. And so it was a lot of I, I I very vividly remember just being with her after school and watching telenovelas a lot of telenovela watching with her, um and reenacting a lot of stuff and dancing and singing and doing all that and it was very much in her house that I could do this.
0: Interesting. And when you say that the that Colombia was harsh, um and that your you know your mom wanted to get out of there, like what what exactly does that mean or what did it mean for you?
1: Well, um I mean the nineties were a time of, I mean, we were, you know, we were a privileged family in Bogota. Uh, my mom had a good job. My father had a good job. Um And, you know, so the violence that was happening in the countryside wasn't really hitting us um personally. But we did have, I did have close people that were kidnapped and stuff like that. And it was just, you know, it was just a dangerous city in the 90s. And Bogota was. And by that, you know, there was just like, There were some bombs, and like, you know, just it just wasn't safe all the time. And my, and I think also, I mean, that's what my mom told me at the time, but I also feel that her heart was just broken and that made the city even harsher.
0: Right. And so, when, what did your parents do uh, in Bogota? Uh,
1: My mom worked for an insurance company. Um I don't even know exactly what she did to be honest. Um she worked with them but like cuz that world of my 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 father um worked for a bank and I was never really interested in that world at all um at all. Like and and the books that were around my house were like economics of whatever and I and I didn't like them. Um what I used to do with the books in my house was I used to um I used to uh, organize them and put like little uh, cards at the end so every time somebody had to take out a book they had to go through me I was a kid and I would write down the date that they had to return the book and all that so I organized the, the the library but like what my parents really did was like I just didn't really care I didn't really like that world and it wasn't you know like it didn't provide me any sort of creativity um and so that's what they both did my dad grew up um Actually, in the countryside, he was a campesino when he was growing up, and then like his, he was he's one of like fourteen siblings, and his older sibling ended up being like super studious, um, and got the younger siblings out of like the town, the small town where they lived, um, and so it was because of his older sibling that he was he was able to get any sort of education, um, but yeah, and so they both both of their worlds was just like not interesting to me at all
0: yeah isn't that interesting because I feel the same way my dad I had kind of a passing interest in my dad's professional life but really not much at all I mean I kind of got it I kind of got the gist and I was like oh okay well that's kind of boring to me
1: yeah <laughs> as a it kid is. I mean as a kid it is I mean still to this day like, I'm, I don't find it very interesting uh, I mean now I feel like I'm interested in economics For a different way A different reason But at the time I feel like the only things That were exciting to me Were like the books That were around And like what I would do With the books Was not read them But like organize them And like, like I will play as if I was a librarian In the house And like you know have like the systems like that was the only way that I could engage with any of the stuff that they did because otherwise I really didn't care and to this day I can't tell you exactly what my mom did
0: (laughs) (laughs) but your grandmother was central to your life and, and central to your creative life
1: my grandmother was crucial in my life and I and I feel more and more like even now when the I didn't know it I think in the midst of writing the book but now that I'm like doing interviews and I'm really sitting with how this book was created because I feel like when you're in the midst of it there's a lot of intentional craft and also magic that happens um and now in retrospect I can see how a lot of what I learned and I allowed myself to do while I was with her really came through here she was she it was with her that I was able to really play And she was the only artist around, even though she wasn't called an artist because, you know, what she did was like she was sewing and she was cooking. But that's that's art. You know, she would make dresses um, and she would also cook. And so she let me do a lot of things. Like there's a scene in the book where um, the girl is writing on her grandmother's back. And I did that as a kid. My grandmother was big. She was fat. And she would let me sit behind her and draw on her back and, you know, and, like, I would just draw all those different things, and, like, I remember they took her once to the doctor, and my mom was, like, why are you doing that to your grandmother? The doctor was really scared, and that's no way of, like, treating your grandmother, and this and that, she just, (laughs) she was just, like, she just let me, she just let me play, you know, she just let me play and explore, and I remember creating haunted houses in her house, and, like, getting ketchup, and, like, smearing ketchup all over the walls, and she would just, like, be, like, okay, well, clean it up it's okay in my house i couldn't do any of that my house was very very rigid my mom was had a lot of rules and it was very strict and again i went to a catholic school with nuns so it was very very strict and then it was in my grandmother's house that you know i could sing and i watch all these telenovelas with her and you know she and she made me all these dresses um and i think that 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 allow me to tap into a really crucial part of my own creativity
0: so as the grandmother character in your book is rendered um i feel like she's rendered really sympathetically as somebody who uh is nursing frustrated ambitions and like dreams that didn't happen probably creative dreams possibly um was that something you sensed in your grandmother was she able to find Uh, satisfaction in dressmaking and cooking or do you think that she had some larger um, literary or other artistic ambition?
1: I mean I think that it's interesting because I think that for a woman of her time she didn't even know that she could have any of that. I think that my grandmother was she, and she's very my 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 grandmother is very different from the grandmother of the story. Everybody is. Um, there's a little bit of a blueprint of my life, but it's the the distance between what happened and the fiction is just is humongous. Um, and so the the grandmothers are very different. Also, because my grandmother, I don't think that she makes a good character. Cause she's like I love her so much, and I and I have her in such a like alter way, you know. Um, she's not. I don't see her as like as flawed, and I feel like you need really flawed characters. Um, and so I think that my, my for my own grandmother, I I don't think that as a woman from the '50s, she grew up in a coastal town in the '50s, a really tight society, and I don't think that she was allowed to even want that, and I, she never really dreamed beyond what was allocated for her. Um, and she really took on, you know, very like womanly roles. Like she was cooking and she was sewing and she was really good at it. And I think that what she loved was being able to provide other people with, um, support and resources and love. Like she was like full, full, full of love. She was the center when we, once we moved to Miami, she was basically the center of the church many times. People came to her for all sorts of things because she just wanted to give a lot of people a lot of love. And so I don't think that in her life she was thinking about her own ambitions. I don't think that she had the tools to even to even articulate that for herself. Um and that's also something that took me to write the the part of the grandmother, the backstory, when there's like that chapter when we go back to like her being in her teens, which is that I wanted to be able to write something for which the character had no words and had no way of articulating, a desire or something. And that is something that I did see in my grandmother she I was like she has no way of articulating any of this because there's no there's no reference for it, and she's not even being taught this is something that she can want mm-hmm. and so I did take some of that into like what would it mean to desire what would it mean to want something that you cannot articulate um and how how would that feel in the body, and how would that even go about how would you even go about doing that in the fifties you know and so yeah that's a little bit. That's a little bit of that,
0: yeah I know I thought that was a great and interesting creative choice that you made in the book where you're you know you're you're uh, n- nominally telling Francisco's story. She's the protagonist and the heroine of the book, but you know then about what midway through the book you go backwards and you're kind of working matrilineally if that's a word <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a i don't know it was just it was a great way of illuminating. Um, not only uh, mommy and Tata, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is it mommy? Yeah, or, yeah, it's mommy. Um, yeah, it's mommy. Um, you're illuminating their, you know, their lives and identities as characters, but it's also a way of more deeply illuminating Francisca and how she came to be. And I think a lot of times, like just as a, as a, in my own personal life, uh, and when I observe other people, I think we often lose sight of how much of our ancestors are in us, whether we know it or not, and how much of their experience did, was uh, and is determinative in terms of how we came to be and how we turned out.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's that's basically a lot of it. I mean, I there's a lot of the the watching them in their teenage years was about how that impacted francisca i mean there's a lot layered in that i also wanted to be able to see them outside of their family role you know that was already assigned to them so like you know you have in the narrative present you have Francisca and then you have the mother and the grandmother and I really wanted them outside of those roles and I really wanted them as like full human beings and how they desire and everything that happened with them and like outside of those assigned roles Um, and so that was that was very important to me it was also it was also interesting to me to see how, especially in, I mean, in a lot of families it happened, in my family it happened a lot because there were so many women, that there's all these competing narratives about what happened, <laughs> you know. And so I think that that's also very evident in Mami's uh, chapter, where there's all this, like, the, the sister says something, the mom says something, Francisca heard something else. And so I'm really interested also in the way that narratives are formed and stories are formed in families and all the secrecy that goes with, in um, families, you know, especially in my family, there 's so many secrets and so many things that are like you know my mom tells me one thing and then my tia tells me another thing, and it 's like there's all these ways that i you form a narrative about something, and I was very interested in that kind of like layering of an event and how that how that happens too and and to me um at least in my experience it was it's it's, it's very gendered um and i and i and I lived through it because I was surrounded by so many women.
0: What do you mean by it's very gendered, meaning the men and the women remember things differently?
1: Well, I so from my dad's family, I I didn't interact with them as much as I did with my mom's family. I very much identify with my mother's family. The men in my life when I was growing up and in my family, they didn't really contribute to the making of the narratives as much. Um, and I think that that's something that it's learned. I don't think that it's like innate in, in either, of course, like we're, you know, a lot of it's just like socializing and how we're told what we can do. Um, but it is that at least I felt that women were more, were, were holding in secrets. Women are the ones that are like holding in the kind of like the history of the family many times. Um, and they're the ones who take the emotional toll and they're the ones who like, kind of like work as an emotional vessel for a lot of the family many times and at least that's how i saw it in my family and my grandmother was the emotional vessel my mom was the emotional vessel and so like they carry all the secrets and they carry all the emotional weight of the family and so i was interested in kind of like that layering layering of story um that happens because of the way that women are sometimes positioned in families yeah
0: You no, know, it's interesting to hear you say that and it's it was interesting uh reading your book and these chapters in particular because on my mom's side of the family, she comes from a family of nine children, very catholic. I have an uncle who's a priest, I have aunts who who were nuns, so we have some some mm. commonalities there. Um and I have been undertaking lately uh a project where I interview them all just because I want my kids to have the recordings so they can know where, yeah. they, where they come from it's just something i wish i had and so there's nine children seven women and two men so seven daughters and two sons and um i've been talking to them and it's been very interesting to experience the the layering process that happens mm-hmm. uh particularly around shared memories you know you like my mother's um you know, not to make this uh, too much about me, but my mother's house when she was a a teenager burned to the ground. So their family home burned to the ground because the Christmas tree caught on fire. And this has been, yeah, this has been like family lore since I can remember. And it's, you know, obviously like a very central experience that all of them have some connectivity to. And so I've talked to all of them about it. And it's just been interesting to use that as an example, how they all kind of have a different, perspective on it and how you kind of, you know, in in trying to assemble some history of it, you, you take, you know, each, each piece and sort of tape them together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, So, yeah, so that's, that's been, it must've been for you in writing those chapters, um, because I imagine you were probably working from some autobiography, but, you know, you were also working, you know, uh, in a very like strong imaginative mode. Like can you talk about what it was like to create those um like those history chapters of the um uh, the elder matriarchs?
1: yeah, the history chapters actually were one of my favorites to write um I didn't even know that I love writing historical fiction so much until I did that um and so it was there were a few components one is like I did a lot of research on. Colombia and the specific places at the time. So the seventies and eighties in Bogota. Um and then the fifties in Cartagena, which is a coastal town. Um, and then for the fifties, I did interviewed um so my grandmother passed away six years ago. So I interviewed her sisters. Um, two of them, the ones that would talk to me, three of them I think. And um, you know, we, we, I did like two interviews with each one of them and I just wanted to get to like, you know, the, it was hard because at the beginning they would just like, you know, they would be like, Oh yeah. So we like, we got married then we went to this place and I wanted to just really get to the details. So I had to really talk to them for a while. Um. Um, and, and I think that talking for a while also does that circular thing of them, like not really wanting to, to touch a subject that I wanted them to touch. So they would just go around and around and around. Um, but I did interview all of them minus one. And then I, and then I just got to writing it. I mean, I, I, I really, there was a lot of just imaginative stuff happening. I brought a lot of pictures from the time as well to really color the, you know, everything that was going on. Um, and, but I, I remember reading, um, I remember reading a lot of Junot Diaz also at the time. I read Pedro Lemebel, who's a Chilean writer at the time as well, um, Rita Indiana, and these are like heavy voicey, uh, writers that also deal with history in their work um, and I would just try new things I think that I was just experimenting a lot with like rhythm and, and what was happening but I really loved um, trying to figure out what could be told from Francisca's eyes and like how could she even like have this information and just I don't know just being really able to imagine the time period but the 50s definitely my great aunts helped a lot Um and then for the 70s, I interviewed my mom um, and I talked to her and I also just did some a lot of research online um, about both of them.
0: Yeah. No, it's funny when you talk about interviewing people and wanting to get the, the the key information and the details and to get kind of a visceral sense of what it was like. Some of it just has to do with hanging around and maybe doing like multiple interviews. Like ev- yeah. eventually you get there, but you have to work at it a little bit or wait for it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so let's talk about you moving from Columbia to Miami and like what that experience uh was like. I imagine a lot of it is reflected in Francisco's story, but just the you know, the feeling of uh like obvious dislocation, but also um, you know, entering a completely new culture, um, dealing with another language, and the impact that this has on a person's sense of identity and personality. Um, and I can't remember if it's in the book or if it's in interview prep that I read with you where you were talking about how you had been very verbal and and uh, outgoing when you were living in Columbia as a child, but then you arrive in the States and suddenly you shift into um, a much quieter mode and you're the observer.
1: Yeah. Um I mean, I'll start by saying that I hated my life when I lived in Miami, period. (laughs) I hated it. For the first, like, four years that I was in this country, I did not want it to be here. I dreaded everything. I was 15. I was a teenager. And I had, um, you know, I had my friends back home. I had a boyfriend then. And... I lived in a city, so Bogota is at eight, now it's 10 million people that are in the city, so it's a big place, I grew up in an apartment, um, and I grew up doing what, you know, teens at the time can do, like, I I was already allowed to go to clubs, I was smoking, like, I had this, like, life there, and I was a very outspoken person in school, I did really well in school um and i talked a lot and i was just very loud and then when i we arrived in miami so we we lived in the north miami in a suburb and where there's a lot of like very conservative venezuelans and colombians and um and i was going to public school so again i went from going to a non private non school really strict all girls to a public school in Florida, which is which is a shit show. Um, and the level the academic level is just like so so low. And the weather was also different, Bogota, even though is in the tropics is up in the mountains. So it's a cool city. Miami is a swamp and it's really, really warm, which is also the reason why the setting and the the heat really makes an appearance in the book because it was so shocking. it was such a difference from what I used to where where I used to live like including just like having air conditioning and a fan like I never had to do that Um, and I was just like really depressed for the first four years my mom also became evangelical Christian they did join this very culty church um, that kind of destroyed a lot of our relationships I never fell in love with the pastor's daughter and I wish I did (laughs) but there was no pastor's daughter to fall in love with (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There was, um, I, they were all, my entire family was very, very deeply engaging with the church and I felt extremely alienated. And my only, the only way that I was able to just, I feel like survive all that time was through books. I read a lot. I was always reading, always, always, always. And that's also the reason why I learned English quickly was because I read and I read and I read and I just took notes. Um, and that's, that's basically all I did. I was just. Um, I became a really awkward kid. I, when I was going to school again, I was really outspoken in Colombia and I would always like be raising my hand and I was like, you know, one of those, one of those, one of those kids, one of those students was always like answering questions. And then in Miami, I couldn't really speak. Because people will make fun of my accent and I didn't know how to say things properly. And I am a Gemini, which is that I'm ruled by Mercury and I like conversation. And I am very I pay a lot of attention to how I talk and how information gets exchanged. And so I was just extremely self-conscious. And the fact that I was now also sharing, a, you know, public schooling in Florida is just horrible. And I also never went to school with boys. And all of a sudden, like, people were like you know like smoking pot in the in the during research and like i i saw people like fucking in the bathroom and i was like what is going on you know like i went to this very rigid school and so i and 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 at the same time they were they do the esl test for immigrants and a lot of my friends were like oh my god this is the best class we don't do anything and i don't like i've never liked that i really i've always loved school i always loved school and i was like you guys are just in that in that class and they're just making you dumb like i just felt like or they're putting all these immigrant kids in the same class and not teaching them anything and that's exactly what was happening and so i remember clearly when i had to take those tests because they will make me take those tests i think i took them like three times and the night before just practicing my pronunciation so much that i wouldn't get put in those classes because i didn't want to go there because i felt like they were just dumbing people down there Hmm. um but you know, I didn't like English at all. I wanted to be I wanted to be a mathematician. and I wanted to study math. I was really good at math. And math was a subject that no matter my level of understanding of English, I could really excel at. You know? I was really good at it. And so I did every single AP math class in in school and I did really well in it. Um, and that's that's the place that I was kinda thriving, but at the same time I was reading and reading and reading a lot. Um and so yeah, I mean, it was a really torturous time. I hated it. I did not want to be there, and I tried going back home a few times, but I couldn't, like, for many reasons. Like, I my dad didn't want me to go back, and like, you know, it was like this whole thing. And so, and we were waiting for like a green card, and like the whole process of, of immigration papers was like a whole thing. Um, and so, I had to just like stay there, and I really, I really hated it. Uh, but I think it was it was through books that I was able to. Kind of like managed to survive that time.
0: What were you reading?
1: Um, oh my god, I read the Romantics. I love like John Keats and like Wordsworth, and I read Sylvia Plath a lot and Sexton. All these like really depressed women, suicidal <laughs> <All laughs> uh, depressed women. Um, Virginia Woolf. Uh, Yeah, I was just reading. uh, I had a really great, what ended up happening was that in 10th grade, I think 10th grade it was, I had a really amazing English teacher um, who made me just completely fall in love with literature. And the first thing she said to me when I wrote something for her, she was like, You need to look up Sylvia Plath. And the first poem that I read of her was like Lady Lazarus. And I was just in love with that you know dark emo Sylvia Plath way, and I just like I carry my little Ariel book everywhere um and I was I was learning English through that I was also reading like Socrates and Aristotle like I was just a total fucking nerd I didn't have any friends um and yeah the, but that was a lot of our, the English romantics and um suicidal depressed women were my Where am I to go with places?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you had, it sounds like at least you had a good teacher. And did you have any, like aside from your um, mom and and, uh, aunts and grandmother and family and uh, and stuff like that, like, did you have any people uh, in your school in particular looking out for you? It sounds like this teacher was kind of a mentor.
1: The teacher was great. Um, she was and she kinda was, you know, again, think about this. this is Florida in the suburb, it's all super conservative. I had kids with Confederate flags. I didn't know it then, thank God. I didn't know what it meant anything politically. I had people call me a spake. I didn't know what the fuck that was, thank God. Um, but the the teacher was kinda like all the weird freak kids, all the people that were like the outsiders will congregate around her because um, we just all loved literature and we were all just weird you know and like there was no space for weirdness in, the, in this place um, what did happen was that I met a friend of mine that worked at the mall and she was four years older than me and she got me an ID and with her I an- started going to a lot of bars and a lot of bars where there were drag queens and a lot of bars where there were like gay people and a lot of bars where there were and that really and I was like I was 16, 17 years old when that started happening. And so I started going to raves and I started going to clubs with her. But she was outside of my, um, outside of my school. Um, and it was through her that I kind of like came to terms also like came out and started being fascinated with queer life, um, which also gave me another creative opportunity you know like i started just seeing i don't know i remember seeing burlesque dancers and drag queens for the first time and that was incredible
0: Hmm. i was gonna say because you had this very religious background and um i don't think i was raised in quite as intense of a religious scene i was catholic not like evangelical but it never took for me that's the way i always like phrase it to myself and it sounds like you were similar and i guess I'm curious like why that is like, why why is it that some people like it just doesn't register? Like I look at people for whom like they connect so easily and it means so much. And I'm like, are we like living on the same planet? Like, I don't understand, you know, I don't know if I fully understand it. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah.
1: I think about this often (laughs) Um, because there, everybody in my family was in it. I was basically the only person who had not converted to Christianity. And, I, I tried, I even tried, you know, I did try for a second. I was like, well, this seems like the way to go. I mean, I resisted it a lot, but there was something inside me, which is something I feel like it's just my instinct and my survival skills. And just like a, I mean, I've, I wrote an essay and I call it like a monster bitch inside me <laughs> that, that lives in the underworld and comes out and like really protects me. And I think that there was there was just so much dissonance and i just couldn't give in totally because i had to give up my entire self if i if i was going to do that and i am and i'm a person who, who is driven so much through self-expression and through just being and doing whoever, whatever i want and whoever i want to be that that was always inside me and i think that that was a huge protection and i'm glad that i came back to my own intuition even if at the time I just called it I don't know whatever I did but like I was just like anxious on the press and I was like this is not for me why am I not fitting in you know it's like why 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 and now I can see that it was just like my own survival it was my, my own way of not letting myself be lost um and that has and that drove me to San Francisco it was that that I was like I need to get the fuck out of here and because I was such a good student and the only way I could leave was through school. So I ended up coming here and going to Berkeley. Um, but it was, you know, it was, I, I'm not sure what it is. I feel like some of us, especially we're artists. Um, there's a huge drive to see beauty and it's a huge drive to not be like everybody else, you know? Um, and to be able to, um, I don't know, recognize beauty in in other people and recognize that we are all different. And that was the thing with the church is that you are very much made to be like everybody else. And you have to follow a code. And this specific church had a very specific code that you had to follow, especially if you're a woman. And so I and again, I was like I was already reading some like feminist texts. And so I couldn't it was it meant that I had to give up my entire sense of self. To be there, and I, and that was something I couldn't do. You know, I love my books so much. My mom was like, my mom will like hide my books and throw them away. My art, all of this, and I just kept. I, I taught myself how to write backwards, so that I could write, and my mom wouldn't find it. And so you had to like, I have all these notebooks full of writings that are all backwards, so that I could. You can only see them like, um, you put it up against the mirror. And so I, I was inventing all the different ways that I could, like, find a way to myself.
0: <laughs> that, is yeah. some, that is some determination.
1: <laughs> I, I remember hearing it in art class that, like, like Leonardo da Vinci did that. And I was like, I can do that. <laughs> and I taught myself how to do it. And I, have, I still have them. I have books. I have notebooks filled with poems and, like, you know, diary, diary entries just all written backwards.
0: Like a kind of private language. Price line and you know it's uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about like just this uh, kind of intuition that you had around the church and around wanting to preserve your yourself your own identity and your own um creative self i i have to imagine too even though like you didn't really start to come to terms with your queer identity until you were what like 16 is that right i don't i don't know what these... yes
1: like 17 17 18
0: But prior to that, you know, you were already finding in yourself resistance to the church, correct? Yeah. And do you think that there was something, I mean, it it seems likely, but I could be wrong, that maybe um, as a younger person, part of that intuition was a sense of your own, like, queer identity and how that would be at odds with the ideology that you were being exposed to?
1: I mean, I think that my queer identity moves it's it's beyond my own like gender identity and sexuality I see it as just like I'm just different and I've always been different so like even if I was like a straight cis person like I feel like I'm still will be really weird you know like I always when I was living in Bogota and like even with my family I was always a rebellious one I always wanted to dress differently I always put on like this weird outfits that my mom fought with me I wanted to go party I wanted to go fuck around and see the world and like do drugs like I've I always was different and my family was so conservative and they didn't know what was going on with me they were like well what's why are you so freaking different (laughs) and you know so like I think that the queerness moves beyond just my gender identity and sexuality but just like my own lifestyle and my sense my vision for the world you know I I yeah I just I never fit it in my family at all and yet I love them, and I and to this day, like I have a really strong relationship with a lot of my aunts because I'm the oldest cousin, and um and I'm you know I love talking and like I love hearing them talk and I am someone who like loves listening to older people and older people love to be listened to they love telling stories and I really really enjoy it, and so I have built a really strong bonds with people in my family who are extremely conservative and yet they love me. Um, But, you know, this whole sense of queerness, like, I think that it was just, I have just always been weird. And my, my gender and my sexuality are just part of that, that, that otherness that I, I have always felt.
0: I relate to that a lot. I mean, I think that not only feeling kind of like the oddball in your family, but also despite the fact that you're so much different from them in so many different ways, like loving them a lot and having really strong relationships with people whom you might have like really strong disagreements with on things like religion and politics. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that, I don't know, that's instructive because I know people and I'm sure you've probably met some living in San Francisco who were not raised in a family where there was this kind of like spiritual or ideological divide. Um, and I think some people don't think it's possible for there to be like a, a, A loving bond between people who are so far apart on so much and yet it's possible
1: (laughs) i mean it is i i'm always shocked when i meet people that don't have any religious background i was like how is that possible (laughs) i was like because i grew up you know i grew up in a country where everybody was colombian and here like people are from different places so like that makes sense i mean I, I have had moments, there's people in my family that I don't talk to. So there's definitely I've had really strong boundaries with some of them who have crossed them. And I'm like, "Nope, I love you, but um you know I'm res- I respect and I love myself more. So that has definitely happened um and with some other of them that we just see the world very different, but they've never tried to disrespect me and so for instance, like one of my uh grandmother's sisters, she lives in Texas, she's is a trump supporter. um she's completely latina. She grew up in Cartagena. She lived there all her life. She's been living in this country for twenty years, and she's already in her seventies, so you know. Um, and she loves me because uh, my grandmother and I have such a close relationship and she loved my grandmother because it was her older sister. And so her and I, I've, I've interviewed her, we've talked a lot, but we just keep it to the story. You know, we just talk about her story. I tell her that I love her and I do. And she's one of the best storytellers um, that I've I've heard in my life. She's from the coast of Colombia. so And she lived there all her life, whereas my grandmother moved to Bogota um when she was probably in her 30s or 40s. And so she, her accent is very rhythmical and she eats her bowels and it's a beauty to watch her speak. And so I love that, And but we cannot be any more different, you know? And like, I was even like, you know, I was even thinking of going to Texas and seeing her, but I was like so anxious about like what that even would entail you know, to go there. Um, But definitely, so like with the people in my family, there's people that I don't talk to, like there's people that I've completely cut off because for Mm. many reasons. And yeah, there's a lot of people that we have extreme differences and we manage to just keep it down to the story or the matter at hand or, you know, like we just do that.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of, yeah, I kind of, I learned that a little bit the hard way, but I just think like when you know that those differences are there, I like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's my job to try to fix something or, bridge the divide it's almost better just to leave it alone
1: (laughs) Uh. yeah i mean i you know i wasn't gonna try i mean when i interview her you know she's already in her 70s and i just wanted to get the story from her i just wanted to talk to her like i was there was there was nothing else for me to do there and that's that's what i did you know um and there's other people that I have, like, you know, had conversations with, have div- the very difficult conversations, that I can see the space for that. Um, with her specifically, it's like, no, that's not that's not what this is for. She's just going to hang up the phone and we're not going to talk over her again. And so I – but I want that relationship. And I think that she's – I am the only person in the family who cares about the history of her family. And so – and my my grandmother's family came from Lebanon, through carta through Venezuela and into Colombia and so I was very interested in the Lebanese history and the only people that know it are all the women that are alive so I was like I need I need to have these relationships with them um because it's also my history and I also like I really love them you know it's weird but like I really love them um even though they're they have really fucked up politics and sometimes ways of seeing the world um and you know it, it's it's hard to even articulate exactly what it is um for me but all i can feel is like i i still feel like a lot of love for them
0: yeah i'm the same way and and are you like you're out obviously like they know like if yeah, come, coming from a religious knows. family they know and like they've come to terms with it in their own ways
1: i don't know if they come to terms with it and i don't really care <laughs> i just <laughs> care that they respect me like i and that's again that's the reason why some people are not in my life um, because I'm super out. Um, I, you know, I came out of queer like a long time ago and I'm, I do drag and I'm trans and I just, I have a, I, you know, I'm, I'm visible in in all the ways that I can. And so they all know, and a lot of them probably have a lot of thoughts about it, but I don't need, to, it, you know, they, they, if they don't say it to me, I don't really care. Um, and so I, I have but i've I had to really push my way through my family, like I had to really fight to be in a position where they know that if they cross a line i they're out, you know basically hmm. um, and that has been it's been hard, but that's in in such a tight religious family in such a matriarchy um where a lot of my aunties were raised with their own aunties telling them exactly what to do, how to behave, and they all did that. A lot of them thought that they could do the same with me or with, you know, my cousins. And I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. And so because I am also kind of like breaking cycles of that have been in the family for so long about how we interact. Um, and this idea that respect for your elders means that you just take everything that they say. Um, I am I'm, I am breaking a lot of that. And so that also means that there's a lot of discomfort and there's some people that are, you know, not very comfortable with it. But um, I am very out. I also feel that none of them thought that I was actually going to be able to have a career being so openly queer and a writer, you know, which is, I don't, you know, I'm also sometimes surprised because I come from another country, but, um, it is, it is, it is what it is. I think that they thought a lot of people in my family thought that queerness, they equated queerness with AIDS. They equated queerness with like, you know drug addicts and stuff like that and um I'm here and so I've I've there there was no queer people before me in my family now I have cousins who are queer and I love that and I've and I've had to like talk to my aunties who are their mothers about them too um but there's been you know but there's nobody queer that is older than me at all so like I I also felt that I really had to break a lot of patterns, break a lot of cycles, and because of that, I have really strong boundaries with many of them.
0: Well, good for you. I mean, you know, you have to. You've. It's not always easy to create those boundaries and to like honor them or to make sure other people honor them because family relationships are, you know, so emotionally fraught and delicate and powerful.
1: Yeah, they are. They are. I mean, and those are the people that you know. I grew up around all of them they all raised me this is the family that was protecting me this is where I felt safe and at home and so I had to really deal with 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 that and like carry the weight of like what does that mean you know because cause your family is the people that are like supposed to keep you safe that really see you that protect you and but I also feel very lucky that I am that I come from a queer ancestry where queer people have had to deal with this for a long time and so we have our queer families, and that's something that I I found that I found when I moved to San Francisco. I found a queer family here. I was adopted by a queer trans woman when my mother and I didn't have a relationship. And so I ended up establishing here my queer family because of the lineage of queer people creating families for themselves. And I feel extremely lucky. I have a really beautiful queer family here. A lot of people that show up for me And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in my birth family that I love, but I am able to choose that. Hmm. You know, I think that um, in my family, at least, and in in a lot of families, I believe people assume that just because you share blood that you just have to be there (laughs) and that there's no choice and that you cannot choose to actually bring people into your life. And I and I do see it also sometimes as a choice, you know, Um, with some of them it's harder than others. But like I am choosing to engage with you or not. And I also, I feel like I have that privilege because I have a queer family here who I've chosen, who loves me and sees me for who I am.
0: Sure. And I I want to talk about your move out of Miami, your escape from Miami. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like, first of all, I I guess like one of the things I want to know is, is how it got inside your head that that was where you needed to be. Uh, And then second of all, I want to know a little bit more about this time in your life where, uh, you were going out for the first time to clubs and raves and seeing burlesque dancer, uh, dancers and drag queens and all this kind of stuff. And um, I, I imagine that you, ha- you had to have had a fairly strong rebellious streak as a teenager and were reacting against a lot of the culture around you. And uh, you just alluded to the fact that you and your mom weren't speaking for a time. Like, was it a was it a difficult transition by getting out of Miami and, and getting to San Francisco? Was there um, resistance to that decision? And, and how did it all come about?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll talk first about leaving, leaving Miami. I, um, I got a scholarship to go study in Buenos Aires. And so I left for Argentina for like eight months. And in Argentina, I live with three boys, three Colombian boys, who are all artists. One of them is one of my closest friends who is a film director. The other one was a actor and the other one was a writer. And so I arrived the first time in my life that I had left my house, you know, the, the controlling eye of my mother was when I got to Buenos Aires. And this was in 2000 and I think it was 2007, 2008, something like that. And, I lived there, and it was one of the most beautiful times of my life. And that really set the tone for me being able to leave. When I was in Argentina, I was I was going there to study literature. So I was, like, going to all these literature classes. Um, I was on a scholarship, so I didn't have to work. And it was the first time that I was, like, doing exactly what I wanted to do. And that meant I cut off all my hair. I was like not wearing a bra. I was going to all these parties. I was like making out with all these girls. Like I was like fully queer, you know? And I, and I remember telling the boys before I arrived that I was like, I'm a lesbian. And they're like, okay, whatever we don't care. But it was such a huge thing for me. You know, like I was like, I'm a lesbian. And they're like, whatever we don't care. Um, But it was definitely in Argentina that I was able to just feel, it was the first time that I felt myself free, really. You know, I was doing also for our things. I was um, going to the theater a lot. The theater was really cheap when I was there. And uh, my friends were in theater. And so we went there all the time. I was partying a lot. I was that's also the place where I saw a lot of drag queens. Um, And, you know, I was feeling very free. It was also when I was there that I took this course called Feminismo Filosofico, which translates to philosophical feminism, and in Argentina, there's these cultural centers that provide really cheap classes, and they're very good. They're, like, college-level classes, but it's really cheap. I paid, I paid probably, like, $10 for, like, two months of classes. And so I, I went to this class, and it was all ages. So I was sitting there with mostly women uh, from their 60s, like, women who were, like, from, you know, my age. I was, like, at the time, 18 or 19, to women who were in the 60s, so women who were in their 40s, and really smart. And we were discussing all this feminist text. So it was the first time that I had an in-depth college-level discussion of feminism. And I remember reading a book, reading, a, I think it was a book or a piece by Judith Butler. And I was like, oh, this, this person is really smart. What do they teach? And I turned around and I saw UC Berkeley and I was like, that sounds like a wonderful place. <laughs> and I looked it up. <laughs> and I ended up up, and I was like I need to get out of my house because when I was in Argentina my mom called me up one day and she was like she knew what was going on she knew that I was queer I had a girlfriend at the time and My mom was, like, asking me all these questions, and and I was like, this thing is going to blow up, and it's going to be horrible. So while I was down there, I had a really wonderful teacher um, of literature. She helped me draft my essays, and I applied to NYU and Berkeley, and I got into both, and then I ended up going to Berkeley. Um, But it was because I was there, and I was like, I need to get out of here. I need to feel this. I needed to be in a place where I could feel what I was feeling in Argentina, which was the sense of freedom that I could just wear whatever I want and go to and see art and not, you know. Just I, I was also like smoking a lot and like drinking, you know, like I was doing all these things. But what I really wanted was my my the intellectual freedom, the creative freedom. I was reading a lot. I was like, and I didn't have those boundaries, and that controlling eye of my mom. And so when I came back from Argentina, I told my mom I was gonna move, that I had gotten into school, and at the time she also found out that I was queer, and it was really horrible, and all, everything blew up, and it was really hard um and she didn't want me to go but i was like i'm going to go either way so you can either support it or not and i left and what happened was that things were really bad and so before i left for call it for for berkeley excuse me i spent 4 months in colombia doing a uh, internship there cuz i couldn't stay with my mom it was too much it was really really horrible and so i left and i spent 4 months in colombia which were also extremely wonderful because all i did was like Party and read. And <laughs>
0: <which> <laughs> who, <laughs> who, who are you staying with?
1: So funny, my dad was working in uh, Ecuador at the time. So his apartment was he was renting it to my cousin. And my cousin is wonderful. And he is probably the only person from my dad's family that I have an actual relationship with because of that time. Because when I got there, I was like, hey, dude, I'm gay. He's like, whatever he was just he was fucking around a lot so he would both just bring like girls home and have parties in the house and then i would just be reading and he just wouldn't care and so that was really wonderful because i spent 4 months living there with him and he was just like you know my dad was coming in and out of ecuador like every 2 weeks and into his uh wife's apartment and so i would just go and see him but i was basically living alone with my cousin and i spent 4 months there and then when i came back I left for San Francisco and San Francisco has been like the best thing that has happened in my life. Um, I like, I cannot even like thank this place enough for like really being formative in my creative practice and my queerness. Like Berkeley was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I, you know, I went to school for gender and women's studies, which all that meant was that I was just going to school to find myself <laughs> and to, you know, discover other people that were like me and the explosion of, knowledge and beauty that i that i felt when i was at at school was incredible Mm. um but yeah that was kind of like the process and then my mom and i didn't talk well not didn't talk we had a really horrible relationship for like eight years it was really bad uh we couldn't talk and um yeah so that's that's a little bit of how i ended up here it was but it was all because i had the opportunity to to see myself when i was in argentina to really feel seen to feel that kind of freedom um and I was like, I need to, I need to keep this for myself. I can't go back to living in a suburb with my mom in Miami.
0: You've got, you've got good survival instincts.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And you know, I want to, I want to know too. I'm, I'm forgetting the name already. But did you ever get to study with the professor from Berkeley? Was she still with us? Or was she Julie still? Butler. Yeah.
1: I wish. No, I did not. Oh, you okay. Butler was like teaching like rhetoric, like PhD rhetoric, and I was like, I wanted, but um, no, but I saw her a few times in school um and I was like oh my god you know it was it was she's she's just the it she's like the gender theorist and so I was like oh my god she's just the it um no but I but I also studied with wonderful 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 professors there and I didn't know that the school was such a good school I didn't know what the school looked like I just got needed to get out of my house and I had heard about NYU and I had heard about Berkeley's and, and I read about Berkeley because of this so that's why I ended up going I didn't even know this i didn't know anything about the educational system i didn't know anything because i was again i'm an immigrant and my mom was trying to figure out how to survive and so we didn't my mom would, would, would have been okay with me just going to the community college which is what a lot of my cousins did uh, but both my sister and i are very ambitious
0: yeah where did your sister what did you I, I haven't heard about your sister yet what was she up to and where where did she wind up
1: Um, She is an amazing, beautiful human being. Uh, At the time, we didn't like each other at all. She was uh, very, very Christian also, extremely Christian. She threw herself to to the church, and she was also deeply homophobic for a long time until she started going to school. She went to the University of Miami for, I think, biology and neuroscience or something, and she took a class there in sociology, and it just opened her mind and she started doing a lot of work with, she does a lot of work with um, immigrant immigrant people and health stuff, and she asked for forgiveness, and we started building a relationship after she went to college, because college taught her that what the church had said was a bunch of bullshit, (laughs) and that it was horrible to treat people like that, and that that was actually had a name, and it was called homophobia, and like, this is why it happens, and so she learned about, you know, the systems, and she learned about capitalism, and all these things, and so, um she left for there she went to study um she went to med school at harvard and now she is in la um but you know she everything really changed for her when she went to school she was really really christian and then she she's not anymore and i'm grateful and then she went to med school and we've been really good friends um ever since we're like we're really really close um and she's now in, in la
0: what is she what kind of doctor is she
1: She's just finished, she just finished her residence, so she's a primary care doctor.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. I live in LA. If I ever need I mean, God, doctors. Are, <laughs> we're talking in the midst of this uh, coronavirus I pandemic, know. so doctors are going to be, uh, they have their hands Very full. Very
1: important. Yeah. I mean, I talk to her a lot. Um, we talk like probably like two or three times a week. And so, you know, she's there on the front lines, which is kind of scary. Um, but, you know, she likes it. That's her, that's her life and that's her
0: job. So, okay, so you're in Berkeley. And by the way, when you were describing your college experience and how much you love San Francisco and how much it gave to you and how, like, it for- it was formative and, and, you know, it opened you up creatively and all these things, all I could think to myself was, like, this is exactly what education is supposed to be. Like, this is, like, yeah. I mean, that is what, like, if, if you could uh, language for somebody how a college experience is supposed to function, like what you said sums it up pretty well for me. I'm like, I'm a little, uh, envious in some ways. It sounds like it was just perfect.
1: It was, it was perfect. But I'll tell you this, when I got to the school, I think I applied for like journalism or something. Cause I applied for journalism for NYU too. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, I went to a journalism class and I was like, okay, like, you know, I love the intellectual challenge, uh, but it wasn't giving me like the soul that I needed. Then I went to like media studies. Then I went to history and I took all these classes and then when I got to the, the, I don't remember what the class was called, probably like gender One Hundred One or gender and feminism, whatever, one of the first classes. And my professor who I still have a relationship with her, Juana Maria Rodriguez, who's amazing professor and amazing human being. uh, I sat in that class and I was like, what is this? This is, this is it. You know, it was everything that I wanted. It was art. It was like deconstructing the system. It was teaching me how to be, uh, a rad feminist person and also make art and I the other thing that I love was like I was able to connect with other people and make art I mean I wasn't I wasn't thinking at all about what my career was going to be I didn't I wasn't there you know and the whole point is like I think that we push kids to just be like well how are you going to make money and that's part of capitalism but in reality like what I really need and what I think a lot of people need at the time is just like skills to just learn how to like survive and like be yourself like I know that that sounds very cliche and it's true. Like people have no fucking idea who they are and what they really like and like what things that they need and want from life. And that's very important. And I, I got to really connect with people there. I had a beautiful group of, you know, all those dykes were with me. It was the first time that I protested a lot. I was protesting all the time. Um, and just that that gave me a real sense of self and that gave me a grounded sense of like who I wanted to be, and that was that was kind of like the soil that um the very fertile soil that made me into a writer um and I took all this you know like like i I basically um focus on like queer theory and history and literature, and so I was you know, my, 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 I spend a lot of time like watching queer porn and going into like BDSM clubs and like looking at drag kings. And I was like, this is my his, This is my research. <laughs> this is my life. I'm going to see drag kings. in San You know, I was, I was at Berkeley. So I was like coming to San Francisco to see drag kings. And I was like, this is, I loved it. Like I was completely fascinated by gender, fascinated by like sexuality, fascinated by it, all these things that like I've always needed to be true within me, why I was so different. And finally I was able to articulate it in a way that made sense for me. Right. Like, oh, this is why my family thinks this way. This is why. Like this is the way that the systems have been working. And now I can articulate it and understand myself better and know that it's not my fault. Uh but rather that these are the ways that people are meant to believe that the world works this way. And so it was very important and Berkeley was like everything for me. Like I loved, I love being there. Um, and then eventually, you know, coming to San Francisco and finding again, my queer family and the queer people and the queer nightlife uh, of the city has been very important to me.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And And I'm thinking some more about education because it's like, you know, there's this, this practical attitude about education that I guess has some merit, you know, you do need to like get educated and figure out how you're going to earn a living in this world. But, um, there's something depressing to me about this sort of like, uh, almost machine like process of creating good little capitalists, (laughs) you know, like you go to school and you figure out what you want to study and you go to business school and you're going to learn how to, you know, work in the system and become a, you know, whatever it is. And I, uh, I don't know that was never a fit for me and, I, and when I think about trying to do that it just makes me feel uh like wanting to go to sleep if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean it's like I I always thought I was like well that's the dead of my soul like I'll just be dead completely and I can't do that and I also think that the sad thing is like people leave and they don't they don't know anything about like compassion or solidarity or kindness or how to even tap into that you know and I think that that's like that's important as human beings that is really crucial and then you know people get into all these relationships and think that that's the way that things are and there's no questioning as to why we are meant to function in the way that we are why we are meant to just like you know go and get this and get married and get a house and do all these things and if we don't question that then like also alive the day-to-day can be really miserable you know
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, another thing that strikes me about you, and I think I feel a resonance, um, in my own experience in my own life is, is that when you're raised in a religious family, like however intense it may be, however, you know, strange the, uh, the religion itself might be, uh, and, and you don't take to it even though you might not be participating in it, it does leave a mark on you. And I I think I picked up when I was reading in prepping for this interview um, that you mentioned that, you know, and I think you're talking about it when you talk about your experience in Berkeley, um, where you're sort of f- figuring out things like, well, what does it mean to be compassionate? And who am I actually? And what are these systems that produce this in my family or produce this, like, you know, these kinds of ideas or responsivity to these kinds of ideas uh, the point that I'm trying to get to is that I think, for me anyway, and it sounds like it's at least somewhat similar for you, when you you have kind of a different angle on things, um, you're still sort of left with the task of having to reckon with what it means to be like a spiritual being in the world. Like, what does that actually mean? Like, if, if the religion handed to you doesn't make sense to you, You know i guess for a while anyway you can just be like fuck it i'm an atheist i don't believe anything i'm out but uh for me like i think a big task of my entire adult life has been to try to set up uh, a way of thinking about that stuff and approaching that stuff that makes sense for me and addresses like the human concerns that are at the heart of anything along those lines however you know however misguided it may get or closed off or however you want to put it. But am I making sense?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I totally feel what you're saying uh, very deeply. I do think that having been brought up in such a religious way has really, I mean, you know, I wrote this whole book. I am, you know, I I write about it a lot. I am very scarred by it. I am deeply. And one of the things that happened for me was that for a long, long time, uh, probably up to like, Maybe four or five years ago, um, I was just like I hated everything spiritual, and I think it was also just I was really PTSD'd out. Like if I if I heard a Christian song and still to this day I get like really tense. But um, like, <laughs> like, it's just like like, like
0: like Christian rock or just a... A
1: Christian rock. Like I if I get I remember getting on a lift like maybe a year ago and the guy had Christian in it, and I was just like I can't deal with this. Like I can't. Like I physically my 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 body's responding to it but for a long time like i i was just like oh this is fucked up like i was just i was just really rationalizing everything and being yeah being kind of like an atheist and not engaging in any sort of spiritual practice um but it was probably like six years ago i started meditating and i've been i've been really getting into like astrology and ritual And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is that I come from a very religious family, but that also, you know, there's the, there's the organized religion that created a lot of fucked up circumstances that impacted my life horribly. That is very true. What is also very true is that the women in my family, my mom, my grandmother, they are very spiritual people. They have a lot of faith. They are like, they carry a lot. And my grandmother, especially. And so I was like, I do have that in me is just that I you know and I've been I had been suppressing it so much because it was so tied to trauma and it was so tied to the way that I've been hurt and like pushed aside and like deemed as an other as an unwanted other and yet again through queer spirituality which I think it's queer because I do think that it was through queer people that I learned about Buddhism and astrology and all those things that I have been able to regain a sense of spirituality for myself that works for me. And what that means is like now I engage a lot in ritual. Now I have a lot of, you know, I have my altar. I do a lot of like praying and meditation and singing and all these things that are like really good for me, especially right now with the way that, you know, this, this really obtuse and horrible world that we have today um, has been really helpful. And so, but I had to go through a a long period where I was just like, no, no, no. I hate all those things. And I was just like very rational and cerebral about everything all the time. And again, I'm a Gemini. So that's very easy. Um, and it's been in the past years that I've opened myself up to ritual, to praying and to doing things in a way that feel good for me. And I feel that I have a lot of, I am very, I'm a very spiritual person and I'm really glad that now I'm able to channel it, a, channel it in a way that works for me. Um, that is relevant to me, you know, and that it's a a lot about like practicing compassion and kindness, both with myself and other people. And that's been incredibly helpful.
0: Yeah, no, I think and there's like this, like kind of an irony when it comes full circle like that, that, you know, for for all of the hand wringing that can go on inside of a family when somebody is um, an oddball or is an other or whatever, you know, however you want to put it, um, is that when it comes full circle, the truth is that it's still there. It's just like, you know, it's just manifesting in a different form. Mm -hmm. But I don't think people... You know, especially people who are really tied to ideology want to see it that way.
1: (laughs) They don't. And I also feel like for a long time, you know, for me, I think going to parties was part of going to church. Um, And I know now that I dress up a lot and I like going dancing and that's a huge part of me, like engaging with my own spiritual self. Um, I was just like I was doing it in a really toxic and uh, self-destructive way for a while um, because I had no sense of self. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, was just a bunch of drugs and thing up and like fucking yeah. around people. And now it's like now I'm like more intentional with it. And like now I can see how good it is for me to like dress up and dance. And that's also part of my spiritual practice um, and engaging with others.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a, a good bit older than you. I'm 44 Okay. Um, so I caught like the tail end, speaking of San Francisco, I caught like the tail end of the Grateful Dead and I was in high school, you know, I was like late in high school and I lived in Indiana. So I, I don't even know if you have a frame of reference for that. But, um, when I went to the, my first Grateful Dead show, I didn't even know what it was. Somebody just kind of took me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, like, I didn't think of it this way at the time, but I, you know, I've, I've often referenced it this way after the fact that it was like finally going to church that made sense to me (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know like which i imagine you probably maybe sensed like some degree of like spiritual connectivity or ecstasy when you're like at a rave or you're dancing or whatever it is for you but it was kind of like that it was like a it was like a uh like a church service for people who you know were really going for it and People in the audience are like losing their minds. and <laughs> Yeah. You know, I don't know. For, for some reason that like totally spoke to me. It was exactly what I needed at the time. And it had like a very deep impact on me.
1: I mean, it is. And it is similar to like, you know, when I would go to church with my mom and the Christian church is like, there's an hour long of praising Jesus at the beginning of singing and dancing and people are on it. And, you know, when you're at the club is like, you're just on it. I mean, a lot of people are also on drugs and you're just like, but you're on it, you know, you're just like dancing and singing in such a, it's such a spiritual practice too. Um, and being able to just see others, you know, and see yourself reflected. I mean, that's, that's really important. Um, yeah,
0: but not sustainable ultimately. Like you you can, you can burn yourself out if you're doing a ton of drugs.
1: Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, and I'm not. I mean, I'm not advocating for that. I think that I. I like to go out. I still like to dance a lot. Um, I mean, right now it's kind of crazy because we're in this like weird moment. Just wear a hazmat. Um,
0: Just wear a hazmat suit. You'll be fine. I know,
1: but I'm still. I'm still. I dance every single day. I have a party in in the kitchen every single day with my girlfriend. You know, we dance a lot because it's really important for us. And so I think that. I think that going out can be, you can just do it however you want. I mean, there's people that like take it to the extreme and that's that's their, that's their shit. And then there's other people like I, you know, I still like to like dress up a lot and like go dancing from time to time. And it's very important for me to keep doing that because it is a way of going to church. And I also love what happens with the nightlife that was also really crucial for me was that it is at night that... The weirder people can go out. It's a night that you can find the weirdest costumes, the weirdest looks, the weirdest like, you know, like behaviors that you can like let yourself go. And so the night and the nightlife has been so crucial for me as a developer, as an artist, because that's where I've seen the craziest drag, the craziest looks, and I think that both my 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 looks and what I've done what I've done on the dance floor really influences also what I do in um in my writing you know and and again when i got to san francisco i was going to the, this bar which we used to call esta noche and they closed it uh, like 6 years ago it was like one of the last gay latino bars here and it was there that i first saw not only spanglish but queer spanglish and so it was like this mexican drag queens who were you know mixing both languages but also now bringing in queer slang and so i was like oh my god my mind was blown you know and it was it was in the nightlife that i saw that and i brought a lot of that language and a lot of that kind of like texture and rhythmic texture of language into my work and it was a lot of just going to these bars and and watching you know the mexican queens who had just arrived from mexico like do a number
0: Wow. And, and like you say, you dress up. I've seen like a, there's a picture of you online somewhere when I was researching and like, it's, I'm seeing purple. There's like a big nose ring. Do you know what yeah. the picture that I'm talking about? I was like, yeah, I, do. I was like, wow, like this, the, the, this girl's got some style. Like when you say dressing up, are you talking about like that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I love, um, I've done, and, and now I do, like, I do, like, my lectures, and when I do speaking engagements, like, people pay me to just do it also, like, what I'm calling in drag, which is that I just go all the way with the makeup, so, like, I do a lot of makeup, I do, like, really big looks, um, and I deliver whatever I need to do, but, like, I, I do that at night, too, and and I think that that's the influence of the nightlife also in my own work. And I've been figuring out like, well, why do we have to keep this only to the bar? Like, this looks are amazing, you know, but it's like, it's really reserved for a specific moment. And um I try to bring it out of that moment into other places and other areas of my life, because it brings me so much joy. And it's such a huge part of who I am dressing up is such a huge part of who I am doing my face. Like it's such a huge part. And And, and I think that especially right now, those things are crucial for me to stay grounded. Like I'm going to do a video, uh, this week, uh, for a friend who's doing a a project in New York and I'm going to just dress all up and, you know, do everything. Um, and even for my book release party, which didn't happen, it it was going to be a drag show and then the book, the book reading. So it was going to be built in it, um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, the whole like self-expression and dressing up is is very, very important to, to my work and it seeps into my writing.
0: Are you a good dancer? I am. <laughs> you know, I bet you. Yeah. See, I, like, yeah, yes. I'm thinking of myself. Like, I don't dress up. I have no sense of style and I'm like arrhythmic. I'm a terrible dancer. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad for the sake of uh, the world. And I guess maybe in particular for San Francisco at this moment in its history with, I just picture there's so many bros in their hoodies, right? Like we need some people out there who are still getting freaky and keeping San Francisco real.
1: Yeah, that is, Oh God, you're so right. I mean, I wrote about this. Um, I, I wrote about this for a magazine here called new life quarterly and how that one of the saddest things about gentrification has been how, you know, the Patagonia jacket combo and the khakis that I just (laughs) hate. And everybody dresses like that. (laughs) And I'm like, dude, you earn $200,000 a year. And this is how you decide to wear. (laughs) This is what you decide to put on your body. You know, I'm like, the queens that I know that earn like no money go to the thrift store and put something beautiful together. And out they go, you know, and so it is really important, like, and also like, the way that the public space changes with that, um, and right now with what's going on with the with the virus, like I've been trying to go out in like my, uh, my 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 fake furs and my little, and I'm gonna do it more just because like now literally everybody's in their sweats out, everybody. I mean, I know everything is horrible what's happening, but I'm like, girl, we still need to. You know, we're sequenced out, and our platform's otherwise. You know, the depression is just not going to let us live.
0: You know what? I, okay, you're inspiring me because I'm standing here yeah. in sweatpants, and I'm just like, oh shit, it's happening do Go put some makeup on. <laughs> go put some
1: lipstick, and go out into the street. We all need it.
0: I think yeah. we do. It is such. I mean, like, here's the thing, and I, 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 I don't want to talk too much about coronavirus because by the time this goes live, like, you know, things could change. They're changing so quickly. Yeah. Um, but. I have, I don't know about you, but I, I can't stop getting emails from companies that like somehow have my email address and they're like, during these weird times, like the, you know, the, during these strange times, like here's an update on how we're handling coronavirus. And I'm like, I don't know if I need to hear this from like, you know, my washing machine manufacturer.
1: <laughs> yeah. They're better equipped than the government to deal with this. Uh, the yeah. socks- the the, the the sock company is better equipped than the government right now to deal with it. <laughs> they have a better plan. But, yeah, I'm getting a million emails.
0: Um, so, okay. So just so people have a sense, because I think, like, you know, you're writing, but you're, you're a performer, too. Um, and you've got other books out. So can you just kind of, like, so people listening at home can get a sense of, of what you're up to, like all that you do creatively?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I make a lot of my living doing, um, like performative lectures, which is what I call them, which is I dress up and I go to universities and talk about Spanglish and language and language hierarchies and like how to craft stories with slang and all this goody stuff. And so that's a lot of how I make my income. I write also essays and, um, I actually have a piece coming out in Team Vogue very soon, so watch out for that. I don't know if it's this is going to be live by then. Um, and I have a book. I'm a historian as well. I'm a historian of queer history. And I have a book. It's called Cuéntamelo. And it's oral histories by LGBT Latino immigrants that came to the United States in the 80s and the 90s. And it's both, and it's bilingual, both in English and Spanish, and it has illustrations in it. Um, and then, you know, I have my first novel, which is Fiore Tropical*, which is what we've been talking about today. Um, and that's that's a lot of what I do. I do a lot of history projects and creative writing stuff, uh, and I try to mix it with some looks, performative looks.
0: Well, that's a lot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, right now, we're working on a history project with uh, trans Latinas in San Francisco around doing history through dress-up. And so how to tell stories through the things that we put in our bodies, basically.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I have so enjoyed uh, talking with you and learning, learning about your life and uh, reading your book and... Um, I'm glad that we were able to do this. I'm glad we were able to spotlight the book in the book club. And uh, I'm sorry. I feel for anybody, uh, any author whose book is rolling out just as all this, uh, all of this pandemic stuff is happening. Like, what a bummer. I know.
1: know. But thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Hopefully this conversation will help, uh, you know, shine a light on it and get people reading.
1: Wonderful. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, you take care of yourself, Juliana.
1: You too. Bye-bye.
0: All right, folks, there you go. That is Juliana Delgado Lopera. Their novel is called Fiebre Tropical. It is available from the Feminist Press, and it was the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. If you want to find Juliana online, their website is julianadlopera.com. They're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Their Twitter handle is at julianadlopera. Once again, that novel is Fiebre Tropical* from the Feminist Press. Go get your copy immediately. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, if you have some feedback, if you want to tell me a story, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support this show, the entire archive of this program is offered freely. Everything's free. So I count on your support. If you like the program, you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod. Patreon.com slash other ppl pod. Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. It's free. Coming up uh, next on Wednesday is Kevin Bigley, author and actor. I think I've talked to a few. I've talked to other authors slash actors. I have authors slash musicians, authors slash actors. Occasionally, you have some hyphenates, right? So Kevin Bigley is an author slash actor, and he and I talked in person. This was he was the last person I think I interviewed. Was the last person I interviewed in person before everything got shut down. So stay tuned for that. I hope you're okay out there. I hope uh, you're well. If for some reason you're not, hang in there. Things are crazy, but I think maybe the good news is that it's crazy for pretty much everyone, right? Pretty much everyone, all over the world. We're all in this and in, in this uh, together, right? Right?